The scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 39. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and he left, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> they went with James. Sorry about that. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> They went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and held her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout the Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Cassie. Sorry about the uh, lectern troubles. Let's uh, take a minute and pray and ask God to help us understand this part of the Bible. Father, we come before you now and ask again that you would work now in this time through your scripture. Father, this is a book that's uh, centuries old that many have read and studied and benefited from. And we ask now that we gather here tonight, whether we've read this part of the Bible many, many times, or whether this is the first time we've read it in years or maybe ever, we ask that you would come and work in us now through this story. And Father, we believe that you are present here with us and that you are good, that you want to grow us and transform us, that you want to bring renewal and peace and hope into our lives. And I ask tonight for each of us here, no matter where we are spiritually or emotionally this week, no matter what's taken place in our lives, no matter what's worrying us and taking up our thoughts as we go to bed at night or as we wake up in the morning, I ask that you would come and remind us of what is true, that the kingdom of God has come, that you, the kingdom of God is free for us to enter into by faith, and that Jesus is a good king. 
who rules our lives and this world well with supreme authority and love. Help us to believe that tonight and to see Jesus clearly. We pray these things in your name. Amen. A couple of years ago, it's about 10 or 12 years ago now, there was a very, very famous TV show that came on Fox called 24. It was about uh, Jack Bauer, who was played by Kiefer Sutherland. And Jack Bauer was uh, some sort of anti-terrorist, CIA, FBI, whatever, agent. And um, each season he would... And this is why I only made it through one season of the show. I mean, how many times can you save the world from terrorism? But Jack Bauer did it many, many, many times, five, six, seven seasons, however many seasons of 24 there were. And that was a very well-known show, very popular show, an action-packed, thrilling show. Some of you might remember it. At the time, the thing that was sort of groundbreaking about the show was that it took place, the entire season took place in one compacted 24-hour period, right? Hence the name 24, I know, creative, right? And uh, they would do the split screen work and um, they would show from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. one episode and then the next episode would be the next hour of the day. And people loved that idea. It was highly stress-inducing for me to imagine what this guy must have gone through in a lifetime, much less in one day. But it added to the intensity It added to the drama of the narrative to think that all of this is taking place in a very, very consolidated sequence of time. It's intense. It's crazy. We we, we better save the world fast. That's the whole idea that 24 as a show was trying to communicate. What we have here in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, beginning in verse 21 and going all the way through the end of our reading, verse 39, is 24 hours, a day in the life of Jesus. We started Mark last week by reading the first 13 verses and studying together the prologue. And we saw that Jesus is presented by Mark, the author of this ancient story, as the long-expected king who comes to identify with his people so that he can save us. And then tonight, what we're going to see is that in the next couple of verses, what Mark does for us is sort of give us a stereotypical day in the life. Of Jesus. It's uh, season one of Jesus's 24. You might think of it that way. You'll see there in verse 21 that the Sabbath day is beginning, and in verse 35, the next morning is beginning. So it's a 24 hour period that is intended for you and for me to understand here's what it was like to see and to experience the ministry of Jesus when he walked this earth almost 2,000 years ago. And the main thing that Mark wants to communicate to us, his people, the main thing that he wants to show people about Jesus who are interested in learning more about him through these verses in chapter 1 is that Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority. In fact, I think you can summarize everything that was just read just with this simple phrase. Jesus brings the kingdom of God with supreme authority. Jesus brings the kingdom of God with supreme authority. That's what this passage of scripture is all about. And so what we're going to do is break that idea of authority down into four different snapshots, four different parts of Jesus's ministry. I want to show you four things that Jesus calls with authority, Jesus teaches with authority, Jesus casts out demons with authority, and Jesus heals 
with authority. But again, the main underlying current of the entire sermon, of the entire text, is the surpassing ultimate authority of Jesus. So here we go. First, I want you to see that Jesus calls with authority. Verses 14 and 15 are John sort of, excuse me, Mark laying out for us um, the main idea or the main content of Jesus' preaching. And then in verse 16, we see that the next thing Jesus does, his first action and ministry after he's proclaimed the gospel of God is to go and call to himself these four men to be his followers, to be his disciples. You see it there beginning in verse 16. He calls Simon, which is Peter, Simon Peter, and his brother Andrew, and then another set of brothers, James and John. And this is a very interesting thing to read because what we see here is that Jesus calls these men with the implicit idea that he is supremely authoritative over their lives. Now, in the ancient world, if you were to be a pupil or a student of a famous rabbi or teacher in the Jewish world, the way it worked back then was that the pupil would choose the teacher. It's sort of like applying to colleges. At the end of the day, you, to a large extent, determine the college that you will go to or that you can get into. But Jesus here completely reverses what the norm was in that day. The pupils do not choose the master in Mark chapter 1. Rather, we see here Jesus sovereignly selecting his own disciples. Look at what he says in verse 17. He just approaches these two men in their boat who are fishing and says, follow me, follow me. Very simple command, and I will make you fishers of men. And then he gets up and does the same thing to James and John. And what we see is that James and John and Peter and Andrew get up and follow. They do what Jesus has said. And it's interesting to note, it's interesting to see here that Mark goes out of his way to tell us that these men who represent all the disciples of Jesus, they leave things that formerly identified them in significant ways to follow Jesus. It's no coincidence that Jesus finds these men in their vocation. They're fishermen. And he says, you need to get up and leave. Stop doing what you're doing. In the case of James and John, they apparently are running a small business here that's, that's somewhat profitable. In verse 20, we see that they have their own boat and they have hired servants. So they're successful businessmen. I think that's a fair interpretation of the text. But Jesus says, come and follow me. Wrap your identity from this point forward around who I am. Not around your vocation. Not around the success of your business. And not around even your family. Notice that in verse 19, we see that James and John have their dad, Zebedee, with them in the boat. It's the family business, so to speak. Now, family is important in our day, but in Jesus' day, family was everything. To shame your family in that sort of culture was the unpardonable sin, so to speak. It was a big, big, big deal to be a part of a family. But Jesus here says, follow me. And they leave their dad, Zebedee, in the boat holding the nets. By the way, can you imagine what Zebedee thought when he came home that night? <laughs> Takes off his galoshes, you know, and goes into the house. And his wife looks at him. Zebedee, where's, where's James and John? Oh, that's... That's a good question, honey. Um, they're gone. What do you mean they're gone? <laughs> they quit. What do you mean they quit? 
This is the family business. They can't quit. Why did they quit? Well, some rabbi from Nazareth came by and said, follow me and up, and they left. I bet dinner that night was interesting in the James and John household. But the bottom line is um, they were willing to leave. They were willing to put first Jesus above all of these other things. And I think I want to pause here for just a second and remind us of something or maybe tell us for the first time something that's really, really important. You've got to hear this. If you want to understand what it means to follow Jesus, if you want to begin to grasp more fundamentally what Christianity is all about, you need to get this. Following Jesus inherently involves a willingness to submit every part of your life under his authority. These men, they, they saw Jesus and they were willing to give up what had previously defined them to go after him. And if you want to understand Jesus and Christianity, you have to understand that Jesus demands priority over everything else in your life. There is no middle ground with Jesus. That is the monumental nature of his authority. Jesus will not accept a only if relationship with you. You cannot come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I will follow you only if I don't have to quit this lucrative job. Or Jesus, I will follow you only if I don't have to have this difficult conversation with this person that I'm dating. Or Jesus, I will follow you only if it's not going to cause me a whole lot of suffering down the line. Jesus does not put up with only if relationships. Jesus must be priority number one, numero uno in your life. Because the nature of his authority demands it. He accepts no second place. Everything must orbit around him. We see that in Jesus' call of these disciples. And we see that in our own calling to be Jesus' disciples. His authority is seen in his calling. Secondly, though, we see that Jesus teaches with authority. So he gets these four disciples and others with him. And in verse 21, the Sabbath day has begun. It's the day of worship for the Jewish people. And they wake up and did what Jews in that day did. They go to the Sabbath or to the, to the synagogue. And apparently Jesus either gets up and just begins teaching, which I would not counsel you to do here, or he's been invited to teach by the leaders of the synagogue because word about his ability has already begun to spread. He gets up and he begins to teach, and we see there in verse 22 that the response of the people that day, that Saturday morning in synagogue, was a response of absolute astonishment. You see that? Verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching. And why were they astonished at his teaching? Because he taught them as one who had what? Authority. Authority, not as the scribes. So Jesus taught as as one who is coming up with original ideas, so to speak. Uh, In that day, the teaching of the scribes, of the religious leaders, of the preachers of the first century Jewish world was largely a derivative, a derivative sort of authority. What they would do is they would get up and they would recite what such and such a rabbi said about this text and what so-and-so said about this text and what this guy said about this text and what this guy said about this text. Maybe kind of like me always talking about C.S. Lewis, you know. My authority is not original, it's derivative. That's what they did. They would come and say, here's what rabbi so-and-so said. Here's what he said. Here's what see he said. But Jesus shows up and he gives a new teaching. When Jesus taught, it was... 
It was as if the Bible itself was being spoken because it was. Jesus differentiated himself in a very astonishing way in the authority of his teaching. As they listened to him, they heard him telling them something that explained their story as if he was the author of it. You know, um, a lot of wedding bands really are, are cover bands. And one thing I've always somewhat enjoyed is listening to cover bands at weddings, either when I'm officiating a wedding or when I'm just going to a wedding. And I love hearing what different cover bands will play. And when they play a really famous song and they do it pretty well, it's fun to watch. It's, it's fun to dance. It's fun to listen and, and hear. Uh, but imagine that you're at a wedding or at a concert and a cover band is playing. And let's say that they play a Beatles tune yesterday or Hey Jude, or one of the better-known Beatles songs. And as the cover band is going at it, they look down, and they're seated right in the center of the front row is Paul McCartney. And then the, the rest of the crowd sees Paul McCartney down on the front row. And Paul McCartney sort of waves. And imagine how the cover band's going to feel. They're like, okay, I'm sitting here trying to play Hey Jude, while Paul McCartney, who wrote the tune, is sitting right in front of me. The band's going to say, you know what? We're going to take the next song off. Paul, Paul, why don't you come up and play for us? That's exactly the difference between the teaching of the scribes in that day and Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching is ultimate in its authority. It's original in its authority. It is new. It was something that they had never heard before. Are you astonished and amazed by the teaching of Jesus? Or are you so familiarized with it that it just sort of goes in one ear and out the other at this point? Are you like the guy that had his house underneath the train tracks? And as the train went over his the roof of his house every hour of every day, it made this insane noise so that when visitors would come to his house, they said, how can you live in a house like this? That train is so loud. I don't know how you can even hear yourself think. And the man says, I've been hearing it for so long that I'm just used to it now. It's a part of my life. Is that your response to the teaching of Jesus? You know, if you're newer to the Bible, if this is a fresh thing for you to hear, if you haven't spent a lot of the time that some of us have studying the Bible, then you are in some ways at an advantage here because you can see with new and fresh eyes how, how amazingly authoritative Jesus' teaching really is. I mean, think about it. He never comes across as someone who's arrogant or proud and yet he says these really ridiculous things for any human being to say in a way with ama in a, in a amazingly humble and charitable way. I mean, Jesus can say things like, I and the Father are one. He can say, no one will come to heaven except through me. He can say things like, if you eat my body and drink my blood, you will live forever. Jesus can say things like the person that doesn't hate his father and his mother and his sister and even his own life cannot be my disciple. Jesus could just come up to these complete strangers who are going about their daily work and say, drop everything, follow me, let's go. Do you realize how stunning his authority is? Because Mark is asking us in this narrative to wrestle with it internally. Jesus calls with authority. Jesus teaches with authority as one who is the ultimate authority 
Can you wrestle with what he says and take him at his word? Thirdly, we see as Jesus continues his time that morning in the synagogue that Jesus casts out demons with authority. Now imagine this scene. I mean, imagine it with me, even if you've read it a million times. First of all, just as a side note, this is free. What does it say about the religious state of that particular congregation that, A, there's a demon-possessed guy in church, and probably no one knows about it, and, B, the demon-possessed guy knows more about Jesus than anyone else in the building. He's the one that says, you are the Holy One of God. That's what you call irony. An unclean demon recognizing the cleanliness, the holiness of Jesus while everyone else fails to see what's going on. But the point is that as Jesus is preaching, he not only demonstrates his authority through his message, but he demonstrates his authority through this encounter with the demon. Look what happens. Verse 23, a guy gets up and shouts, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now that sort of language in the Bible is... Bring it on, mano y mano, let's go at it language. It's time to throw down, the gloves are coming off. It's, it's fighting language, it's intimidation language. And then notice that the demon names Jesus. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now in that culture, people that were involved in spirituality believed that when you named someone, you in that moment began to exercise power or authority over that person. And so the way to read what's happening here is to think about it like this. This demon is trying to get a one-up on Jesus at the very outset. He's trying to say, Jesus, you think that you have authority, but you don't have any authority in here. The have you come to destroy us is meant to be sarcastic. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So what's Jesus going to do? I mean, that's the question on the people's minds, right? They've heard this unbelievable teaching. He seems to be a man of authority. He's saying things that they haven't heard any of their teachers of the law say before. And then this demon-possessed man gets up with an evil look in his eyes and begins shrieking and screaming at Jesus and challenging him right there in public. What are you going to do? Well, Jesus simply speaks to him. Shut up. And that's a literal translation, by the way. Be quiet. Zip it and come out of him. And we read in verse 26, the unclean spirit convulsing the man whom he possessed came out of him and left. This demon is attempting to subdue Jesus here and continue to exercise influence over this poor fellow. But Jesus, simply with a word, rebukes him and sends him on his way. So if they weren't amazed already at the authoritative teaching of Jesus, then they get to see Jesus bring healing and flourishing and new life to this poor guy who had been possessed by this evil spirit simply by saying, it's time for you to bail out. And the idea that Mark wants you to have in your head is that it makes total sense For the word of Jesus to simply and immediately be able to cast out that demon. Because it is the same word that said, let there be light, and boom, there was light. It's the same word that divides the ocean from the land. It's the same word that flung the stars and the sun into orbit. It's the same word that breathed out 
and there was man and there was woman. It's the same word that at this very second, as you live and breathe and as I live and breathe, is upholding our lives by the power of his word. The word of Jesus is so powerful that it goes without saying that this demon stands no chance when faced with God. Jesus calls with authority. Jesus teaches with authority. Jesus casts out this demon with authority. And then finally we see, beginning in 29, that Jesus heals with authority. Now this is the same day. He moves on with his disciples from church to have, I guess, lunch at Peter's house. And we read there that he's got his disciples with him. And in verse 30, his mother-in-law, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, is ill. She's got a fever And they begin to think to themselves, they're starting to make a connection from point A to point B at this this point mentally. They think, okay, let me think about this. He just preached the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. He cast out a demon just by saying, get out and be quiet. Maybe he can help my mom who's had this sickness that no one has been able to figure out. And she hasn't gotten any better for weeks upon weeks. That's the idea here in the passage. And those, so they say, Jesus, look, my mother-in-law's ill. You seem to be a man who's in charge and knows what he's doing. What can you do for her? And the contrast between what Jesus does here in this private home and what he did in the synagogue is pretty interesting. In the synagogue, he's in a public place. It's very obvious what he's doing. There's all sorts of people around, and he casts out the demon with a word. But here he's in a private place. Hardly anyone else is around. And yet he still is able to demonstrate his superior and amazing authority in very, very simple ways. Look at what Mark tells us. Jesus simply came and took her by the hand. And as he took her by the hand, he lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. There's no period of healing. There's no time between um, the time Jesus touches her and the time she's fully recovered. He doesn't write out a prescription and give her some medicine. He touches her and boom, the fever is gone. It could have been a common cold. It could have been terminal cancer. It doesn't matter what it was. What matters is that it doesn't stand a chance when Jesus walks into the room. And notice the compassionate way in which Jesus treats this woman. He takes her by the hand. That's a symbol of his love. He lifts her up and he restores her to a life of doing what she's been called to do, a life of flourishing, a life where she can care for her family. It's it's just as natural a thing for Jesus to cast out that demon and heal this woman as it is for us to get up in the morning and go to work like we do every other day. That's the point. That's what a day in the life of Jesus is meant to show us. What we see here is that with the coming of Jesus, we see the inbreaking of God into this world. We see the inbreaking of God's power, of God's love, of God's healing, of God's goodness into our own stories. Jesus represents the renewal of all things that God longs to bring with his kingdom. J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings famously, well, famous to me, probably not that famous to y'all, said, uh, the hands of the king are healing hands. And thus shall the rightful king be known. 
The hands of Jesus are healing hands. He himself brings the new age. He brings the dawn of renewal and joy and peace. Jesus brings the kingdom. The works and the teachings of Jesus drive back the darkness of this broken world. And Mark records these events because he wants us to see and to wrestle with who Jesus is. The authority of Jesus in this passage goes without saying. It's blatantly obvious on the very surface of the page. The question is, will you accept it? Will you come under his authority? And I want to close by encouraging you to come under the authority of Jesus Because the goal of Jesus' authority, unlike any other king, is not to enslave you. The goal of Jesus' authority, rather, as we see here time and time again, is to restore you. Jesus is a king with supreme, monumental authority, who uses that authority not just for his good, but for your good. And he proved that to you and to me ultimately in that he was willing for a time to lay his authority down for you. He was willing for a time to allow Roman soldiers to arrest him. To allow them to force him to carry that cross up the hill. To allow those soldiers to take the nails and drive them through his wrists and through his ankles. Do you think Jesus could have done something about that had he wanted to? This is a man that spoke a word and demons fled in terror. This is a man who touches someone and immediately their illnesses are gone. Jesus could have called down a legion of angels as the scriptures tell us elsewhere. And easily taken care of those who sought to kill him. But he didn't. He gave his authority up so that he could bring you back to him. That's the kind of king he is, you see. A king who is willing to use his authority not to domineer you. But a king who was willing to use his authority to such a degree that he even gave it up to bring you back to himself. That's what happens on the cross, you see. The cross is the ultimate example of the ultimate authoritative one, laying down his authority, laying down his life, and taking the form of a servant, the form of a slave, the form of a, of a lamb, substituting himself for those who've sought to reject his authority from the moment in which they were born, so that they who reject his authority can once again come into his gracious presence. You see, Jesus' authority is worth submitting to, Because it's the only authority that will lead you to a life of fullness, a life of hope, a life of forgiveness. And Jesus only gave up his authority for a time. Because after three days in the ground, God raised him from the dead and has made him king of kings and lord of lords. And one day every knee will bow before King Jesus and worship his ultimate supreme authority. The only question that remains is will you bow before him willingly or not? Bow before Jesus. Come under his gracious rule. Submit every single instance, every single facet of your broken life to the goodness of King Jesus. He will heal you. 
He will bring you peace. He will cause you to live with him forever. And he will do it not because you've earned it or deserve it, but because he is a gracious and loving king. Will you submit your life to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us now. Help us to submit our lives to your authority. God, um, so often we refuse to do that. Even if we've placed our faith in Jesus, we so regularly decide that we're going to go our own way, that we're going to call the shots in our life, that we're going to decide our futures. And yet, God, we make such a mess of it because we are not God. We are not ultimate. And so help us to recognize, God, that you are the king and not us and that you are good. You are for us. You're the king who is willing to come and die for us so that we could come back to you. Help us to believe that tonight, God, and bring us back to yourself under the good and gracious authority of Jesus, the great teacher, the great healer, the one who calls us to himself. Jesus, come and help us to believe that you are who you say you are and that you are worth giving up everything else for. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.